And now, live from Chicago, here's the Black Knight of Talk Radio, James Arthur Yancey. Well, we're back and we're live. And as usual, you know, this this is amazing to me. I live in Chicago. Well, I'm in actually Berwyn, but I'm in the Chicagoland area. And I have a devil of a time calling Canada. I don't understand it. We're right next door. We're, you know. And so I'm calling Alan Watt here, and it, it's it's not working out. I have another system I'm going to call. We're going to end up, unfortunately, taking him like, completely live right on the air. I <laughs> hope. We'll see if this works. Hello. Hello, Alan Watt? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just called you a moment ago, and I have trouble. This is James from Feet the Fire. We're live right now at the moment. I, our system here has a devil of a time calling Canada, and I don't understand why. Uh-huh. But I have a backup system that works internally throughout my computer systems, and I want to welcome you uh, to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on. Uh, you're lucky, too, because my other phone just piped in this instant. <laughs> oh, boy. So, Well, I, I didn't get a, a chance to... To, to give you a, a proper introduction uh, that I had planned, um, being a, a live radio show, sometimes <laughs> we, we end up... Uh, but uh, Alan Watt is a longtime researcher into the forces behind world systems of government, researcher into the ancient histories, religions, and secret societies, and their influence on culture, crea- uh, creation, and guidance. Involved in the music business, where it became evident that music was a prime indoctrinational force in young people, and that the science was perfectly understood by those in control. He appeared on many radio shows beginning in 1989 discussing the global agenda and the new society which will emerge. The website is cuttingthroughthematrix.com, and, uh, well, now officially welcome, Alan Watt. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on, yeah. yeah so um, what, uh, what, I, what we just had on before was David Bay did a, uh, a, a video series, uh, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginning, and he talked about uh, the very uh, subject we're going to be talking about, kind of a segue into it. Mm-hmm. And actually a, a caller, I mean a, uh, a listener, actually wanted uh, you in particular to talk about the Masons and, and so forth. And I have a question about these uh, secret societies. Is it possible, and then we could just flow into wherever we go, is it possible that, for example, we mentioned the Masons, that there may be group of people running it behind the scenes or may have an agenda, but... When we find anybody, the average average masoner, mason who is in, involved in it, just like just like a, a Catholic, for example, is unaware of the things going on behind the scenes. Is it possible that the the regular people are unaware of what their leaders are doing? Uh, yes, it, it's based on a faith. Uh, uh, right from the beginning, you you have faith that you're joining something because you don't really know what you're joining. Uh, very little is told about uh, what their belief systems are. And it is a religion, although many of them will deny it, but Albert Pike, who wrote Morals and Dogma in the late 1800s, who was the Pope of Freemasonry, really, uh, said it's, it is a religion. And so it's a faith-based uh, type of religion where you join having faith in those above you, even if you don't know them or even ever get to meet them. And it's, it's a tiered structure, like a pyramid, uh, going all the way down to the bottom. Uh, the bottom ranks... Uh, put on a, a type of a, a show, uh, an outer portico, as Pike called it, um, of charity work and self-improvement, uh, that kind of thing. But in reality, it's, it's a particular order, 
and masonry is based on the same types of rites as Knights Templars, which was an order, a priesthood actually, of warrior priests. And so they, they are part of the system in which we live, and they, they do uphold the system. And times past when they were changing the system, uh, they spearheaded revolutions in different countries. And do you think that there's a way that we as the people here can, could uh, stop this from happening, or is this kind of like a, a foregone conclusion and we're going down this slope? It's a foregone conclusion. Um, uh, we live in, in a sense, we live in the past. We're kept in a particular reality uh, from our birth right through. We're kept in it by the media mainly, um, which gives us a form of reality. And we don't participate in our destiny creation. We think everything's just happening on a daily basis and we deal with crises as they come up. But nothing is further from the truth. And it's not hard to find that the world is planned centuries ahead. When you read the, the, the histories by many of the movers and shakers, uh, telling you what they're going to do for the next hundred years, and sure enough, you'll, if you live long enough, you'll see it all happening. Um, we, we saw that with Lenin's writings. Lenin uh, was put there uh, in the Hegelian technique of being in opposition because they must have opposites fighting each other uh, verbally or physically to get change to occur. And, and to get the people to move in a certain direction. So Lenin and, and the staff around them churned out lots of books with the whole agenda for a hundred odd years. And prior to that, Karl Marx wrote about the unification of Europe to be followed by a united Americas and, and then a Pacific Rim conglomerate. And then we find the old books from the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, books of their, of their, uh, with the minutes of their meetings going back to the 1930s discussing the same thing. So we're living in a script uh, our whole life and the major events is nothing more than a script in fact. And that's how the real world operates. Um, like a huge business plan, uh, big corporations will plan investments 50, sometimes 70 or 80 years down the road. And governments are no different. That's what the, the real um, diplomatic core of London was all about was shaping the future and guiding other countries along a certain path. Yeah. Now, so, is there a chance that perhaps we, the people, worldwide, will kind of either wake up or something or other and throw a monkey wrench into this? Is there, is there, or is it unlikely it'll happen, or is it impossible? It, it's, um, it's not impossible because of the, ultimately, uh, looking at the, the science, the world science meetings that have taken place over the last four or five years. Um, like the one at Loyola University in Louisiana where they talked about inserting chips into the brains of all the public to control them. Uh, this, was, this, is, uh, this was discussed at, their, at the two-week-long meeting and they had uh, cybernetics engineers there, the microchip fellows were there, uh, top surgeons were there from all over the world and Newt Gingrich headed it off. He kicked off the discussion and um, they, they said they have a chip ready that they can be implanted in the brain and the professor from, uh, from Japan that was there uh, who helped to spearhead this particular chip said once it's inserted uh, there will be no such thing as individuality for the general person um, it will be the end of individuality think of it more as a beehive 
uh, where you'll hear the whispers of messages between the central computers uh, programming those around you and yourself, like whispers. And that's what I, I immediately thought of the Borg in Star Trek when they, when they said that. So they have all these tremendous plans. Government has always been concerned about maintaining power for a dominant elite, as Aldo Huxley called them, the dominant minority. And Huxley himself said in Berkeley, uh, the, the, uh, in 63 or 4, it's on my website, he talked about uh, the dominant elite that run the world. He said they've always been here, and I suppose they always will. So that's the real world. We, we have very little say in what happens, really. Uh, everything is planned um, from a dominant minority, and then it's marketed to the public through think tanks and, uh, and, uh, and through movies and, and media, basically, to give us a false idea of what's really happening in the world. Well, it looks like you and your website uh, are, uh, are are called anyway to try and get this information out, um, and which is which is good. Um, I hope that there is a spiritual component working on the other side of all of us, kind of waking us up, and that maybe something will happen outside that will catalyze a change inside. Now, I know I'm say I said the word hope a few times. Yeah. But, but that's where my point of this show is, is to try and find truth, whatever it may be, no matter how pleasant or un unpleasant it is, mm -hmm. and get this information out so people can make their own uh, decisions. But that's the key to a lot of them. See, everything we're saying right now has been discussed in think tanks in the past because, the, again, those who planned the future um, had all this hammered out how the public would react to different changes. And... Um, that's why they can always set up in advance all the different societies and systems to join, which lead us in circles as the process is going on. Um, they want, in a sense, to, dis to capture the soul, we might say the spirit, the, the individual part, the, the ghost in the machine, as they call it. Uh, they want to capture it totally because that's, that's the big bug in their system is, is the, the individual who can, can say the king has no clothes and their whole scheme falls apart. They want total control. And, and in a totalitarian-type system, it's imperative that every individual be utterly 100% predictable. That's the kind of society they're, they're driving towards right now with all the, 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 the total information network. They want to know how you tick, what you think, how you will behave and react to all the changes that will uh, come your way. Um, so, yeah, it's up to the individual spirit. However, they did also, um, if you read Arthur Kessler's or Kessler's book, uh, The Ghost in the Machine. Now, he worked for the United Nations. Uh, prior to that, he worked for Stalin and came right over to the U.S. and worked for the U.N. Um, in his book, in the last chapter, uh, and the whole book is about how to control the individual uh, and the think tanks that were employing him and others at the United Nations to, to find out the best way to either lobotomize the general public and they came to the conclusion that there's a part inside the brain that gives you your individuality and it's also part of your survival mechanism. So if they could knock out that survival mechanism, the part that gives you intuition, um, if they could do it chemically, uh, or otherwise they would do so and then they would have perfect peace because most people would not react then to anything that came their way they'd simply go along 
So this was also thought out in advance. And I think we're seeing today uh, the lethargy within people. It's almost though uh, um, they don't see the dangers that are occurring all around them as all these various laws are being introduced. Uh, I think they've been very successful. Now, Kessler himself said they could either inoculate the people and it would target a specific part of the brain. Uh, they could do it uh, by spraying you from the skies. They could put it in the food or the water. And I think they've been doing all of this. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like it, with with the inoculations being ridiculously uh, yes. put upon us. And then you have... Uh, I just... I've heard of chemtrails, of course, for years, but it only dawned on me personally when I happened to be driving in Chicago and I saw so many chemtrails so thick and so uh, crisscross across the sky that I just felt like I'd been asleep for you. I mean, I, I'm sure it didn't start that day, yeah. but I finally saw all this, the, these items. But when I, I, I talked to people, when I started out doing the radio, it was your basic kind of nighttime talk radio where I talked about anything, but usually odd things. And I learned all these items over the years, and I talked to friends who have known me for years, and they're educated, and they won't even listen to the beginning basics of it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Uh, if you have educated people, um, education is like a, a tunnel. You, you, universal or university means you, you become one verse, one voice. You're put into a tunnel, and you're all trained to think the same way. And what they understood even 2,300 years ago in the days of Plato, they understood that, that language is the key to everything. If you control the language and the way you, you use words, you control the thoughts of the people. Uh, we are like computers in a sense. Uh, a good computer programmer who understands the language uh, and understands the logic of that computer uh, can tell you what it must arrive at when you give it a question. He knows the answer because of its logic and its language that it must use. We are the same. And education tends to put us into a tunnel. Uh, we're taught we know it all when, when we graduate. And because of that simple um, trick that everyone comes out there saying the same things, having the same opinions on all the different topics, um, uh, they don't realize that they could all be wrong. Uh, that's the simple technique of training the public through education. And I always think it's so amusing that the Freemasonic books are so happy to tell you that they spearheaded the universal education across the world, and I'm sure they did. Um, we're, we're all dumbed down and silly, and we don't really know what's going on. We're told to just uh, don't worry, be happy, and enjoy yourself. Meanwhile, uh, we see the wolves gathering around the sheep pen and we're, we're all grazing and uh, quite contentedly. We've lost our ability for self-preservation. You know, it's it's funny. Now that I sit here thinking to you, for the first time in my life, I realized that I dropped out of college, not because of lack of intellect. It was, in fact, opportunity and money at that point. It was I just did not like it. I, yeah. I felt as if my brain was being squeezed through like a strainer or something. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't put it into actual words, but I look back at it now, and it was a blessing. Yes, yes. University and all education really is. is um, look what they do today. The ones with leadership, especially boys with leadership abilities, a bit extroverted, uh, are put on Ritalin. That's not by an accident. And uh, uh, so they got rid of the 
leadership qualities through the use of drugs. Um, everyone who goes into school, and I caught on to this very early in school, uh, all they wanted you to do was to parrot what you were told, and you got the little gold star. And if you um, asked questions which the teacher didn't, couldn't answer, um, you were put down as a problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is, yeah, that is the system. That is truly the system. It's not there truly to help us. It's put there to indoctrinate us into a certain blind way of, of looking at things, and it makes us more easy to manage. Well, now, uh, on, this, uh, on the idea of this dumbing down, and there are people who, like, you know, such as yourself and others who are seeing this, why are you being allowed to say this? Is it because they are arrogant and thinking that there's nothing you can do? Is it like toying with you? I mean, why, why are there people, dissenting people, going on the Internet and radio and mm-hmm. writing books and all that and not being killed or put away or trying to be converted like 1984 uh, would elude? I think that's all coming. Uh, they prepared for this in advance, too, because intelligence is a fascinating subject when you study how intelligence is gathered and always has been by uh, the elite of every country. Um, they gather intelligence, which are the topics of conversation that people are having in public or in, in, in bars or bazaars or coffee shops. And at one time, London had about 5,000 spies, full-time employees, just going around coffee shops and tea shops in, in London to gather information and, and the topics of conversation. That's intelligence. So when they hear something getting said that's true and could eventually be a problem, they set, they set up people to be superstars who take the same information that's been commonly discussed, they wrap it up in mystery or um, alien uh, theories and, and spin it off into outer space and ridicule it. And so they do actually come against you when you're just saying the, the, the facts that are known, they will come against you and give you trouble. And if you do get too uh, much of a problem, they have no problem with eliminating the people. At the moment, uh, I think they've got so many superstars out there misleading the public and ridiculing the truth uh, that they're not too concerned, to be honest with you. No, that's and I think they've got, they've got very cocky. They're very arrogant right now. And they're so sure that, that they've got it all pretty well sewn up. And they've, they've got it so that if you say things like uh, Illuminati or Masons and or mm-hmm. Skull and Bones, you say all that stuff, it, it gets left off without ever having mm-hmm. uh, even examined this stuff. Yeah, you always ridicule truth. And uh, especially if you wrap it up with, as I say, you know, uh, the, the space aliens or whatever, um, you can ridicule it very easily. Uh, and that's what they do. They, they make sure there are superstars out there to to spin it off into fantasy land until it does become a circus. Yeah. And and now, of course, um, they call it conspiracy theories. That's the pot. It's a new fad. Uh, so if you're telling the truth, the, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, like that's your hobby. <laughs> and you're saying, no, I'm trying to tell you to save your skins because you're going to lose everything shortly if you don't. Um, so you are under an informational war here, um, and the big boys, of course, make sure that they control the big superstars of the airwaves. All right, we have to take a break here, and what I'll do, since I'm using this kind of backup system to call, is I will have to hang up and call you back after the break. And I apologize for the intrusion, but 
I, I learned the hard way on this, and I, I can't figure it out from Chicago to Canada. It's like I'm calling the moon, but I will call you back uh, in, a, in a couple of moments. Okie doke. All right, Alan Watt is here uh, talking about uh, the secret societies and what have you. And we will open the phone lines up in a bit if you have questions. I know I have I have a bunch because I, I I want to deal with things like the skull and bones and how do you know they're members and do you have little calling cards and and uh, so forth. So we'll be back. Feed the fire. IPS Meatworks presentation and you right after this. We are here with Alan Watt. I'm calling him back with my little system here to get through the blockage into Canada. Uh, we had uh, brownouts here in Chicago and uh, phone issues. Hello. Yeah, welcome back. We're live with Alan Watt. We, I was just saying we had some brown brownouts for the first time in my recollection in Chicago this week where the actual voltage dropped to the point where I have these battery backups and all the systems and all that that it almost it wouldn't it would have crashed without that. It's just uh, amazing what we're going through now. And yeah. do you think that all of these shortages and what have you, these are all part of a, a plan to extrapolate as much uh, money from us as possible, keep us as prisoner as possible, prisoner of credit uh, and so forth, that won't they get to a point where they might break us rather than become totally efficient in how they get stuff from us? Well, what we have to do with everything is always look to Europe first because everything that comes here is done in Europe prior. And you find that in Europe they have what they call rolling brownouts. And these are organized between the countries of Europe where they'll, they'll, they'll cut off your power for two or three hours during the day, different times of the day for different countries. So they're sharing the brownouts, you might say. And this is all to get them used to cutting back on and having less electricity. Um, so, yeah, we are paying through the nose as we get less and less of everything under the guise that we just can't keep up, which is nonsense, really. Um, they're looking towards a much reduced population in the future. That's really where they're looking. Down. That's why there's no real big in infrastructure going up for, for uh, uh, power, etc., I, remember, I worked at a corporation that um, was a very successful, homegrown, 75 years. It made uh, fine chocolates here in Chicago. And it was sold to a corporation, and within 10 years, they bankrupted. And what I saw from inside was, the theory was to raise the price as high as possible so that you would actually lose customers and thus lose workforce and thus save money, making the profit more, to find that balance where you could actually have the least amount of people working and make the most amount of profit. And the backup was, if it didn't work out, well, you can always just sell off the, um, the name and the, and the materials and bankrupt it anyway, which is what they did. And it looks like that's the goal is to, if I could sell one box of candy for $200 million, I could only need one person working for me, and that would be ultimate, even though it's kind of impossible. But if you put that on a world scale... You scale back the population. You control how much electricity they use, and so yeah. forth. You can actually have a pretty efficient machine geared toward feeding these elite rulers. Yes, and, and as I say, many of the authors at the top, near the top, the front men at least, have written about this, um, about a reduced population. Uh, 
I think Jacques Cousteau gave an interview in a magazine where he talked about three quarters of the world's population must go. Um, uh, David Suzuki, who's a, who speaks out on uh, nature programs for the World Wildlife Federation, uh, and who is a geneticist himself, uh, said publicly on, on Canadian television that uh, I think 500,000 a day would have to die to save the world. And then we have the Georgia Guidestones erected by um, the Rosicrucians, um, talking about the need to kill back the 60-70% of the world's population. So they've been very open about this agenda. And the, the United Nations has a Department of Population Control, and people think that the United Nations is some kind of social worker that goes abroad and hands out food. Uh, the, the United Nations has a department for every department you have within your federal government and your, 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 your state government. It has a duplicate right down to your plumbing uh, section. Uh, the United Nations was set up to be the world government to take over. And um, one of the previous leaders of NATO, a French uh, general, put a book out on that subject and, and said that, that that is the goal of the United Nations. It was set up to be world government, um, including population control. And it's to be a world where you will not be born unless they have a function for you to, to fill. Uh, total efficiency is what they're after in the, the system that they're making. Total efficiency. Uh, Lord Bertrand Russell, who uh, was one of the main spokesmen for the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is the British uh, uh, part, the common British Commonwealth part of the CFR, he wrote uh, The Impact of Science on Society, and in there he tells you about the forms of mind control they'd have to use on the public as we go through the big changes to convince the public of the necessity of, of cutting them back, cutting back their populations and perhaps sterilizing them. So they have published many of, of the uh, books out there by people involved in the planning stages. It seems like if this gets to a certain point, it would be virtually irreversible. It, it would be, and here's the problem. We always find out after the event I've always found when they're talking about science or they want to do something, they find out they've actually been doing it. And uh, when Kessler, after Kessler, talked about um, the need to kill off that part of the brain that gives you your survival mechanisms, and Bertrand Russell also backed it up, he said, in fact, that the public won't need it anymore because the state will be making all the decisions for them. Um, you find out that after, when you follow the histories of inoculations, I think they've actually been doing it for, since at least the 1950s. And that's when all this um, attention deficit disorder began, which is only a degree of autism. There are many degrees of autism, and, uh, and autism itself, which used to be incredibly rare, uh, now is, is common. And it's been common since he stepped up the inoculations. Well, you tie that in with Kessler's statement of how do we, how do we lobotomize that part of the brain that gives them their self-awareness. And uh, it, it, it clicks they've actually been doing it. They've actually been doing it, yeah. We'll try to work in there. We have some uh, phone call coming in. As we, as we talk, we'll work in some phone calls. If, uh, and mm -hmm. Hello, you're live on the air talking with Alan Watt. 
Yeah, hey James and Alan, I'm a brand new listener. I just gotta say thank you. Uh, one of the greatest shows I've heard online for such a long time. I'm, I'm afraid I've, I've missed out on it for however long he's been going already. Uh-huh. Um, my question is really revolving around um, the best way to, to spread information. Because personally, I work with a, a few other artists, and, and I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, we have works on uh, major networks, MTV, etc. And I also kind of like to. Um, kind of combat what we were talking about, where music dumbs people down, news dumbs us down, school dumbs us down. I kind of like to inject um, facts in, back into the, the things that we put out for people to listen to and see, but I also find myself struggling to make it interesting without, without getting sensational and, and drawing in any of the, um, I would say, unscientific or pseudoscientific facts. Like doing um per- perhaps doing like an animated series working on regarding project paperclip and then going further into um project artichoke mind control things like this but i have problems finding the line on where where I, i'll start discrediting myself and everything else and and start losing people well it sounds like if you go for the truth uh, you're inevitably going to be uh, discredited by these people well, I, I'm not really worried about being discredited by those that I'm commenting on, but rather by the people that I'm I'm going after. Uh, mostly the same people that are listening to the the music that's dumbing them down and, and, and everything else. Okay, Alan, um, uh, can you have any advice for him? Yeah, if you can if you can put into it um, the need to come together in a sense. Uh, what's happening in the world we're, we're, we're all sharing the same fate here and, and yet each one of us individually can, can set up chain reactions and, and that there's hope there it must give the people hope and give them back their self-respect um, as individuals it's a, this is a war against the individual they, they're really trying to make the collective personality where we're all see and do and sing the same things and individuality must be put back on its platform because the individual in a sense is the, the spiritual holy uh, being on the planet um, the collective is not collective is, is always ruled by a head someone else's head so so you can reach them and we have to use uh, all means possible and music Plato knew this now Plato 2300 years ago in the Republic talked about this world agenda uh, he admitted he belonged to the secret societies having uh, studied in Egypt and he was 20 odd years in Egypt uh, studying with the priests and he talked about music he said music is one of the most powerful forces to affect the young and he wanted to license musicians because of the effect he could have for change uh, because he didn't want the changes to get out of hand by the dominant elite uh, to which he belonged so we must always think outside the box and and uh, and show the beauty of the individual um, and raise it back up to its proper place because the collective is too easily managed by the majority we must always have individuality All right, well, I, pre- I appreciate that a lot, thank you Thank you for your call, and uh, thanks for your comments, and welcome as a listener. Oh, there we go. Yeah, now, what happened in the 60s then? We had a big musical revolution, uh, the establishment, and uh, that seemed to kind of just peter out. 
it didn't really in fact it started much earlier and here's what happened um, at the beginning of the 1900s in the late 1800s um, the societies which uh, Cecil Rhodes belonged to H.G. Uh, Wells belonged to H.G. Wells wrote just as many non-fiction books as he did fictional books and he was a front spokesman for the for the establishment as they called them in England and London he was trained by Thomas Huxley, Professor Thomas Huxley, who was the best friend of Charles Darwin and pushed the Darwinian theory after Darwin died. So he was chosen and picked out for this agenda. And he put books out in the late 1800s talking about free love, free love, uh, do what you want, uh, on all this kind of stuff. And it didn't go down too well. So in the 1920s, you see the move for prohibition. That was the beginning of the Galian dialectic. And that made uh, the booze cans uh, very exciting places for young people to go. Uh, that's what you do. You make something forbidden, and you'll always go for the forbidden fruit. And then at the same time, it brought out uh, jazz, um, the Dixieland jazz, and then the Charleston, and the miniskirt, by the way, because the, the miniskirt came out in the 1920s. And, and they also brought in cocaine in big quantities, so you had music, cocaine, the booze, the forbidden fruit of the booze cans, very exciting. And they hoped to destroy uh, the old system which had served its purpose, which they had run before, but now had become obsolete. So they wanted to destroy the family unit. And they knew that the best method was to get youngsters engaging in sexual um, practices even before puberty if possible. And once again, Lord Bertrand Russell had experimental schools trying all this stuff out with the authority of the British Crown back in the 1920s. Well, it didn't work too well then because they didn't have the pill. Uh, they uh, didn't have the abortion facilities to take care of all the, all the unwanted pregnancies. The orphanages became so full uh, there was an outcry and so it faded away. They went back to work. They, they, they heavily invested in science. And, and they brought the same thing back out again in the 60s, and they called it pop. Pop is father, of course. Then you had the rock. The rock is the, the symbol of masonry again. Um, and it introduced the, the free love, same thing, the miniskirt, uh, uh, the drugs, um, etc. And a whole culture promoted from the top down, not from the bottom up. Uh, the BBC in England was the only station at the time you could watch. It was the only television station. And it was amazing to see all these Etonians because only people from Eton were allowed to work in the BBC. They wanted to make sure that it was kept within that class. And here's to these people with, with the, the Queen's English accents um, promoting drugs uh, and rock and roll and all this kind of stuff. And I knew then when I was really small but this was coming from the top. It was being promoted from the top down. They had to destroy the family unit. And sure enough, they had the pill by then, and abortion clinics came out. And uh, we see where we are today, where it's very difficult for, for a couple to stay together for any length of time. So this yeah. was all planned. Yeah. It looked like, the, exactly, I was going to suggest that this movement for freedom and knowledge would be usurped or guided, if you will, down to a, a, a crash where a lot of the people who were idealistic in the 60s and 70s ended up either becoming part of the establishment and giving up or uh, either, you know, suicide, uh, 
unhappiness, isolation, and, and so forth, it just kind of went down. Well, it did all of that. Uh, it was a, and it's so amazing, really, when you understand this this type of science that under the guise of freeing the person and saying to the youngsters, do what you want, they're actually putting you into a nihilistic state. Because when you go through all of that and you're jaded before you're 18 or 20, um, yeah, you start to lose all faith in life and, and, and reason for living, etc. And they did create a lot of nihilism during the, that era. Um, and uh, so, so it, yeah, this was all planned to bring down the old system in order to bring forth the new system, which was a system that H.G. Wells wrote about, as I say, in the late 1800s, where everybody would be born with a service and a duty to serve the state. And when you look into the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the CFR's policy, that's exactly what they, how they worded it, to say that people in the future will be born with a, a pre-existing duty to serve the state. Okay, hold on there. We're going to uh, take a break, and we'll come back and continue talking with Alan Watt as we uh, hopefully cut through the Matrix. We'll be right back after this break. Um, uh, is the name of his uh, Hello. website. Hello, Alan. Welcome back Hello. to uh, Feed the Fire. It makes me kind of wonder. I was just listening to a public service announcement I had about giving blood, and it, it makes me wonder now how, how many organizations are out there that are really, whether they know it or not, aiding and abetting this deterioration of society. I, I think that's well, well explained in uh, Professor Carol Quigley's book, um, the Anglo-American establishment. Uh, he laid out the agenda uh, on behalf of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was the historian for the Council of Foreign Relations of the U.S. And he laid out the agenda. Uh, he's the man who picked Bill Clinton to go to uh, uh, Oxford to be a Rhodes Scholar. And he said, um, this new system that they're putting in place is a new type of feudalism where corporations, international corporations, will be the new feudal overlords. And he put into words what I'd thought about for many years when I noticed that, that the top CEOs of big companies could move around uh, into politics, uh, into banking, into uh, car manufacturing, all the big uh, uh, industries. And I thought, you know, you could not let your man go from the top to a competitor to be the CEO because it would take all your secrets with you uh, and all your investment plans etc and, and I, that's when I realized this is all one and that's what you have uh, all these corporations the big ones are controlled by a small group of people who are the biggest investors in them and that's the big stick today they have more sway they have tremendous lobbying power they have uh, permanent offices opposite all parliaments and con uh, congresses um, these guys are really dictating to their friends, their, their, their political, uh, political friends, 
um, whom they've often worked with in the same corporations, they're dictating the policy, and there's obviously a central head at the top of them controlling them all, because um, Cal Quigley knew about this back in the 1960s. Well, that, 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 that's kind of things that I wonder about. The way I kind of looked at the world was that there were, I used it as a, a mini example of, like, um, the mafia uh, in, the, in the movie The Godfather, that there are these families, quote-unquote, that people can either belong to bloodline or simply join or, or be used and used by that are using everyone else. But doesn't, in evil, doesn't there have to be one person running it all? I mean, isn't that like the whole kind of theme that it's uh, somebody has to ascend to that top and then that they would be fighting for that top position amongst those? I don't think they fight for it. At least they haven't so far. Uh, the time might come when they will fight for it, but uh, it, it's an organized structure. You don't get up the ladder unless you... I mean, you could belong to a particular wealthy family, an old family, and if, uh, if they don't think you're up to keeping the secrets of all of this, you won't get tapped out at university to join the, the Skull and Bones or, or the, the Apostles at Cambridge or the Circle at Oxford. Um, the, the, the professors are the ones that tap you out and, and you've been tested prior to that that you can keep secrets so not everybody within the same families even gets in on the know uh, that's how secretive it is uh, you have to be tried and tested and, and for, for the ability to keep your mouth shut um, in fact that, there was a, a friend of mine that I know he's actually a guest in a show here who is a 32nd degree mason we had a discussion one time uh, about this, and he uh, and he's, he seems to be a rather truthful guy. Uh, he says that he's not aware of all of these things in there. He's a 32nd degree. Uh, granted, it's in more of a rural area of the country. I don't know if that matters. But he also said, well, since I'm not a 33rd, you know, that last degree uh, could contain information. But he didn't really see any existence in the group of uh, Illuminati and, and so forth. Yeah, even Albert Pike, who put out the major book in the 1800s for those up to the 32nd degree, said that the lower Masons, now he was way above 33 himself, and uh, there's 360 degrees in the circle. And so the bottom degrees, and, and Pike said it himself, are mainly misleading. He said it's not necessary the candidate uh, understands the symbology or the reasons and purposes behind the initiations and degrees. It's only necessary that they think they understand them. He classed that the lower masons, uh, along with the rest of the profane, he said were very useful. So he had no real regard for the bottom levels himself. Life begins at 40. That's the 40th degree. That's when you start to get told the secrets. Now, I am not very up on, on masonry. I thought the 33rd was the highest. Is, is anything past that kind of a secret secret, or is it known that there are more degrees than 33? Oh, it's known. I mean, you can go up into the there's different branches, like, like Alastair Crowley, was a 30th, uh, 3rd degree uh, Scottish Rite Freemason and he was eventually set up by the British Crown or the establishment to have the OTO Ordo Templi Orientis and his, his set went up to 96 degrees mm. So, so can you, do you know of I mean people who are these upper degrees I mean is there like a list that I, I've met some of them in, uh, in the past who have been uh, up in the, the 40s and 50s and maybe some above that too. 
Yeah. I mean, you mentioned 360. I mean, so are there anybody in the 200s, or is that some kind of mythical level of enlightenment? No, you see, you don't have to go through every single degree uh, one at a time. Even in the Scottish fight of Freemasonry, uh, some people can get up to the 32nd in in a week if they want to bring you up there. Uh, And and they'll just run through the rituals like a machine gun, and uh, they won't remember much of it, but if they learn the proper responses, it's just ritual, basically. Uh, they're brought up there and that happens to people in the newspaper industry or even a local newspaper if they can use you to influence the public's mind uh, they'll bring you up much faster hmm. so I should be aware of a uh, mason bearing gifts <laughs> coming that's, to them. that's true that is true and uh, I mean Freemasonry as we know it today was really given by the, in England first of all to a middle class, a new middle class that they had created to handle or manage the industrial era in the 1700s. But prior to that, in the 1500s, in Queen Elizabeth I's time, you had the creation of the Rosicrucians coming in from from Europe and the the Middle East. And um, John Dee, who was a main advisor to Queen Elizabeth I, he coined the term for the first time, the British Empire. And he approached Queen Elizabeth I and, 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 and told her, he says, this could be an agenda for the future where we can, we can create a whole world system of government uh, based on a form of free trade. And those countries that would not join would be excluded from the trade and, and would basically be embargoed until they joined. And it was not necessary that the founding country, Britain or England, uh, would, would always appear to be in control. They could use other countries to do it for them. And that really was what's behind the creation of the, U- the U.S. Yeah. Hmm. Well, let's hold on for a minute. We're going to take a break, and we'll come back at the top of the hour. We have a full hour left with Anna Watt. We'll be taking phone calls along the way. 888-863-2722. There's also email and chat rooms involved. But this is a talk show, so phone calls are preferred. And... Uh, I'll give you a call back then, Alan, after the top commercials. Right on. We'll be right back. 